Game Cool Books 61 Imprinted Chapter 10 Wheels Picks up on that suggestion from the end of Upriver. We check in on Father Gomez. A little cloud forms the epigraph taken from the Book of Kings. It's also the title of one of James Joyce's Dubliners stories. We get ominous signs associated with the sea at the start and at the end of the chapter. First, the assassin passing through the seaside Chittagatsi, and later the white birds, and in due course the two will come together. For now, Gomez is still on the track of the tempter, yet to reach the world to where she's gone ahead, but not far behind. Of all people, he encounters Paolo and Angelica, and they have seen her. The vagueness of their description of Mary's age and stray details of her physical discomfort give way to their fixed ideas, transmitted by the little boy whispering to his sister. First, they remark on the way that both Mary and Father Gomez seem unconcerned about the specters, as if they didn't know about them. This places Gomez, with his zealous faith, in a metaphorical position of childlike innocence, to go with his supposed theological state of grace, having been absolved ahead of time so as to preempt the guilt of the murder he has to commit. The actual children here fantasize next about getting the knife back. They know about the specters, so they can't see them. They tell about the boy who took it from their brother Tulio, and how the girl who was with him was a liar. As if borrowing from Father Semyon's obsessions, they recall bitterly how the witches took Will and Lyra to safety. Intriguingly, Angelica wonders if the apparent protection from the specters Gomez and Mary enjoy is some kind of knife. It seems possible that she and the other urchins would overcome their fear to mug him if it was, but no, in his understanding all he has is a sacred task. Clearly, Mary would have a corresponding demonic one to have passed through safely as well. Her direction, like Will's, has been south toward the mountains. Gomez is sure to find her. Instead of an alethiometer, he can just ask anybody. And three days since we last saw her enter the world of the Mulefa, literally stepping through the window, now we see Mary doing so in the way we usually take that phrase, to mean coming to understand them. And it's mutual, as they start to know more about her, too. First comes her physical sense of speed and acceleration, riding along with them. But along with that comes her intellectual curiosity, perceiving that the diamond-shaped physiology must have been derived from an evolutionary shift in the distant past. Twice, her wish for something to hold on to is repeated, suggesting that she has yet to grasp these creatures as fully as she would like to. And yet no harm comes to her, as frightening as it is to go hurtling along with them. It's mostly exhilarating. And briefly described, their village seems idyllic. The dwellings form a circle. The round of work and leisure looks tranquil and satisfying. 
recognizing their use of fire as well as wheels and language, these creatures become people in Mary's mind. Steed or cycle has to change to friend. And the bright-eyed amiability is clearly an individual, imitating her speech. Anku, for thank you. The phrase used more than once here for her learning is absorption, though it resembles also what we would call immersion. Like a child at school, there's that innocence motif again, fitting for this Edenic setting. Mary's hands fascinate the Milefa, and their trunks fascinate her, alike capable of force and gentleness, milking or tearing. The trunk's role in communication is a mixture of sign language and something like the tonal inflections of a language like Chinese. The symbol used here is uh, chu, the syllable, sorry. It even sounds Chinese. Its meanings all connect to one another, much like the branching commentaries of the I Ching, or like the levels of meaning in the alethiometer readings. Water, rain, sadness, young shoots of grass. They're distinguished by movements which Mary begins imitating with her arm. This is a more visceral way of representing the embodiment of spoken language. It's a topic Pullman makes central to his understanding of poetry, what it sounds like and what it feels like to say it out loud. While the Mulefa learn a few words of English, most communication takes place in their language. Interestingly, while Mary identifies herself by name when they first meet, the Zalif identifies him or herself with the collective word Mulefa. Thus, in addition to the prevalent Edenic and Chinese imagery associated with the wheeled beings, they might stand for any sufficiently communal-minded human culture. And as a last precaution before merging with such a culture, however enticing, Mary consults the I Ching, asking, Should I be here? Keeping still so that restlessness dissolves, beyond tumult one can perceive the great laws. As a mountain keeps still, thus a wise man, and so on. And at once, Dumulefa gather to her, curious about the divination stalks in the book, and the fundamental doubleness of her hands, which underlies both of her activities of counting and reading. Besides lacing her fingers, playing the church and steeple game, she also does the thumb-to-forefinger itsy-bitsy spider motion. Ama, apparently, is using it in earnest to ward off evil at exactly the same moment. So there's another data point for our notion of making up a chronology for this book. Rather than cause and effect, though, Jung's preface to the I Ching emphasizes its testimony to the principle of synchronicity. Only in the loosest sense is this message Mary reads from the I Ching actually coming to her from ancient China. It is rather emergent in the present, and she takes it as an affirmation of the entelechy between what she wants to do and what she should do the coherence of personal wishes and duty. Whereas in most heroic stories, 
in Will and Lyra's case, for instance, these two things generally tend to come into conflict. In this way, too, Gomez is a perfect analog, for his zeal and his mission are similarly in perfect alignment. About the Milefa, we learn with Mary that they are of two sexes, though the difference in the word for male and female individuals is too subtle for her to catch. They live monogamously once they're mature after long childhoods. Children, unable to use the seed pod wheels, seem clumsy beside the grace of the adults. Like the bare fencing scene, this seems to allude to ideas in the Kleist work on the marionette theater. Not content to long for the day they'll be old enough, the settlement's old child, like Lyra trying Mrs. Coulter's makeup, goes to try a seed pod wheel on, only to fall over, squeaking with anxiety. It draws Mary's laughter and draws the attention of an adult. The indignant parent and guilty child make a comic tableau of the fall story, of which Pullman's fantasy is a more complex retelling. At least it can make fun of itself in this small way, though all the epigraphs and the dominant mode of storytelling take themselves quite seriously. In this way, Mary begins to understand the value of the sea pods as a cultural icon as well as a practical means of transportation. The rider's claw becomes not like the subtle knife more sharp than anything else, but instead more slick than any object in Mary's experience, impregnated with oil. The seed of the idea for the rose oil in Pullman's new book, Secret Commonwealth, might come in here. But maybe this is more clumsy cause and effect thinking on our part. Mary can't tell which came first, rider or tree. But the question is nested in a third element, the geology of the natural highways. At any rate, everything is linked indissolubly, managed by the mulefa. Their attention extends to every herd and grove, every individual in the herd, a kind of Buddhistic ideal of concern for well-being and the fate of all creation. That they are vegetarian, for we see a cull of the grazers, where nothing is wasted, just like in the stories of Native Americans. One place Pullman and Lewis can agree is on the power of Hiawatha names and settings in their stories. Mary's pleasure in seeing anything done well has the ring of the craftsman narrator mingled in with it. The young ones playing with horns to make each other laugh recall Lyra's antics, and this feast, attended by a mysterious stranger, recapitulates the very beginning of the golden compass. Only no one tries to poison Mary. Her absorption goes so far that, like the mulefa, who use their trunks to make nets in pairs, she begins sharing the task with a friend. The two-ness of her hands, which lets her tie knots or read the book on her own, also cuts her off. The Mulefa's communal mindset is ingrained in their physiology, where she has to learn it. And it comes back to the wheel trees. What caused Mary to meet them, after all, was that the nearby groves are looked after by this group. They're checked on daily to harvest fallen seed pods. 
The trees benefit by the mulefa doing the work to crack open the hard seed pods and then supervising the germination of the seeds. The grace of the wheeled people's movement, though, reflects the more profound grace conferred by the oil, which they call the center of their thinking and feeling. This is the difference between the adult's wisdom and the children's lack thereof. In a manner which will be elaborated upon later, Mary sees the connection to the question of her life, the one Lyra taught her to collaborate with the shadows in the cave to pursue to get to this point. For now, we are spared the Mulefa's long, complex arguments, supplying our own commentaries full of references instead. What interrupts the story at this point is that the settlement, and why is it a settlement and not a village? Is it new or temporary? The settlement is attacked. Mary, repairing a roof and enjoying the use of her two hands for a change and the cool breeze, sees a flash of white on the glitter of the sea, like a fleet of sails. Much like Mrs. Coulter, in their case, grace has a more sinister connotation, as they make with a silent grace for the river. Describing what she sees in response to her companion's question, as tall, white, many, this prompts the Mulefa sounding the alarm and fleeing at once. Atal, Mary's friend, calls the coming threat Tualapi. Again wallowing in that amoral pleasure of seeing the thing done well, Mary marvels at the discipline of the sailors, comparing them to a flock of starlings, that beautiful, swift image Pullman will use for his story, Lyra and the Birds. But like Will realizing that the metal beings on the ship were actually armored bears, she sees that there is no crew, and that these are not boats, but birds, with wings for sails and necks like swans for a prow, armed with beaks and powerful legs. Atal bravely waits until Mary finally comes along to join the rest of the Mulefa in retreating up the road. The destruction of these Viking birds is near total, scarfing the food stores, pushing wheels into the water, demolishing houses. While the Mulefa look on, not pacifists, but evidently not powerful enough to deter this enemy, murmuring and crooning with sorrow, Mary tries to encourage them, promising to help and make the village again. The foul creatures, squatted, and voided their bowels among the devastation. The demon of the terrifying Bonneville in La Belle Sauvage delivers a similar message in the same way. Finally, the Tualapi go away, their swaggering strut, the crucial counterpoint to their elegant sailing. Anxious about the seed pods, though not guilty, importantly, as the anxious child was made to feel when he fell and was discovered, the Mulefa are astonished when Mary swims out to the sandbank to recover five of the precious wheels they had thought lost. Plainly, the seeds and oil are more important even than the town itself, but apparently not so important that the Mulefa would die to protect them either. Still, along with their surprise, they are full of gratitude, and Mary feels glad to have done something useful at last as she puts it.
The chapter ends on a suspenseful note, reminiscent of the story we heard about the world of Chittagatse, that the Mulefa's world was once plentiful, rich, full of life, but something bad happened, and some virtue has gone out of the world. The seed pod trees are dying. So from one odd mode of transport to another, Wheels Closes and Dragonflies, chapter 11, opens with a couplet from William Blake. The truth is told with bad intent beats all the lies you can invent. Ama, concurrently with Mary, making her itsy-bitsy spiders, is wondering how to reach the girl to wake her up. She climbs past the cave mouth for now, to play a game with her demon among the spray and rainbows of the waterfalls. It's a variation on the waterfall climbing, which Pullman describes in multiple essays and elsewhere in his fiction. This always reminds me, too, of the very end of the Narnia series. Interestingly, the rule for this game is to go along without wiping one's eyes, to move not blindly, but dazzled by the light. Moving not by faith, perhaps, but relying on all one's senses and experience. In addition, it's competition with one's will, with one's demon. The outcome here is inconclusive, for Kulang reaches the top first, but doesn't turn back as Ame expects to check on her. Instead, she feels his surprise, and the game is cancelled. We see Yorick from their perspective. A bear, huge and white, with claws the length of daggers. And Will, a boy with a strange bird that might be a demon, Balthamos. In an echo of Mary's meeting with the Mulefa, Will and Ama introduce themselves across the language dividing them. He frightens her almost more than the bear, even without brandishing his dagger. Once she sees the wound to his hand. Bartamus translates her welcome news that Lyra is here, and along with it her gloss, that no mother could be so cruel as to keep her daughter asleep like that. Going to look, curiously, Will bids Yorick stay behind and keep watch. He has to brush his eyes, which reinforces Ama's impressive skill. It returns us to the setting which has opened the book, the dappled light, the cliffside. Mrs. Coulter, sleeping, sweeping the floor, looks domesticated until the monkey appears and suspects their presence. Though he tears the wings off of bats, the monkey is a known quantity. Will wants to know if there are any soldiers with them. The reader's been wondering this, too, since Mrs. Coulter's zombies and her specter battalion were last seen at the lake of the mountain where Will met his father in the other world. Ama supposes there are not, though there are rumors of men or ghosts on the mountainsides at night. Her superstition in this case actually reassures her, for these, too, are a known quantity. But are they? Or does Mrs. Coulter still have her forces in reserve? How the heck did she get to this place so quickly? 
The story never settles the reader's curiosity on these questions, but moves ahead. Will resolves to make a call. Ama explains she has a drug to wake Lyra, but not with her. It's hidden at home, making her disavow ever having met him in Yorick, and making plans to meet her again at sunset when she comes to deliver Mrs. Coulter's daily offering. Will goes alone to meet Mrs. Coulter. Ama wonders at his intrepidity. Didn't he believe her? Of course, Will knows just how dangerous the monkey is. Still, he's nervous, yet his senses are clarified. He asks Baltamos to keep close, and at once the angel warns that the monkey is already there watching them, but blending in with the dappled light. The monkey says something, though we don't hear what it is, nor, though we see her with a book on her lap, do we ever find out what Mrs. Coulter is reading. Presumably it's her jeweled breviary from the Limehouse Chapel, where she snatched Tony Macarios however long ago. Disrobed of her fox fur, there's her graceful figure, wearing travelers khaki like high fashion, a red blossom like an elegant jewel, showing off her legs in the sun. Unused to the feminine sweetness of Mrs. Coulter's smile, much as Lyra was at first, where Lyra was thrilled by it, Will is unsettled. She knows his name because Lyra says it in her sleep. Mrs. Coulter invites him into the cave to see Lyra, and he goes. Though Will had spied on her, this is their first face-to-face -face meeting. As for her demon, he'd last seen its demonic face after stealing back the alethiometer, slashing at it and closing the window just in time. That, and Lyra's stories, no doubt, mean that for all Mrs. Coulter's charm, Will resolves that nothing will make him turn his back on the golden monkey. The brush with the vodka and the priest comes to mind here, too, as instructive object lessons in wariness. His guardian angel, bird-formed, watches close, and Yorick presumably is somewhere nearby. Yet Will has ventured into the cave with Mrs. Coulter. Anything could happen. For all the reader's trepidation, though, and Amma's, and for whatever reason, nothing does happen. At long last, there she is, his dearest friend, looking so small, Will thinks, the force and fire that was Lyra awake gentle and mild asleep, pan as a polecat, yet unable to do anything about their predicament but sweat. It seems the golden monkey was planning to ambush Will at this moment of distraction, but Will keeps his hand on the knife, just as the demon crouches to spring, and the woman apparently changes plans with a shake of her head. Will's counter move is to surreptitiously memorize the layout of the cave so as to be able to find his way through that night in the dark. Either buying time or genuinely curious, he asks Mrs. Coulter why she's doing this. But she neutralizes his mental mapping by sitting with him back in the cave mouth. 
her look of sad wisdom, just what Lyra saw through after her rescue from the silver guillotine at Bolvanger, makes Will mistrust Mrs. Coulter even more. He is utterly prejudiced against her, resolving to deceive her in turn as he has everyone in his own world. He's been preparing his whole life to fool her. This moment will be echoed closely, exactly, when Mrs. Coulter faces her greatest threat in Metatron. I'll deal with you, Will thought. And yet the passage from William Blake suggests Mrs. Coulter is actually being honest here in her own way. So do her actions, stopping the golden monkey from springing, taking fresh juice and sipping it first to prove it isn't drugged or spiked with vodka. Remarking how easy she was to find, Mrs. Coulter seems to be leading up to asking Will for help, but he never really gives her the chance to. Inexplicably, Mrs. Coulter expresses polite interest in the alethiometer now, though she did not bring it along when she snatched Lyra. As for the knife, they spar awkwardly over Sir Charles's real name, Carlo, without Will divulging any more information about his use of either artifact. The simple answer to his question, finally, is that Mrs. Coulter loves Lyra. As her mother, she wants to keep her out of danger. Will's impression of her in this moment, seeing how she tucks her hair back, smelling the hint of fragrance and the smell of her body, is one of disturbing. The narrator hangs with Will's perspective of Mrs. Coulter, places us within Will's confusion, and remarks, if she noticed, she didn't show. She rightly doesn't know if she can trust him, but she's tired of lying. The truth, as Mrs. Coulter tells it, seems consistent with what we have seen. Her service to the church comes up against a dilemma, whether to obey her superiors or to save her daughter. Hitherto, her faith, zeal, passion, presumably her ambition as well, have all been on the side of the church. She didn't look after Lyra, had her taken away from her, and knows now Lyra can't ever trust her. Yet, three times, she says, she's tried to save her. The only time that really makes sense is at Bolvanger, under the silver guillotine. Presumably, Mrs. Coulter means this most recent kidnapping of Lyra to be another attempt, and so the third might be her taking Lyra away from Jordan, though we're never shown that that was to preempt some attempt by the church on her life. At any rate, now Mrs. Coulter is hated by her daughter and can expect no mercy from the church. Can Will offer her friendship and a way out? He avoids the question, instead pressing her, why keep Lyra asleep? because she would never listen to and much less believe Mrs. Coulter, she says. The only way to keep her from running away, to prevent another fall, is to keep her from being Lyra. 
without going into the prophecy, Mrs. Coulter has otherwise been quite forthcoming. But with what intent? How much more self-sacrificing could she be? She's given up everything to keep her daughter alive. Wouldn't your mother do as much, she asks Will. He responds with more shock and rage than we've ever seen from him. It's complicated, though, as he realizes that he had to protect his mother and not the other way around. He asks himself if Mrs. Coulter loved Lyra more than Elaine Perry loved him, and then immediately decides that that's unfair, that his mother's unwell. The narrator leaves ambiguous the quality of Mrs. Coulter's intent here. Either she did not know and was bad in ignorance, or she did know the effect of her words and was monstrously clever. Though this cleverness seems to bite her. She looks uncannily like Lyra in this moment, Will reflects. But apparently because of the shock of realizing his complicated emotions about his own mother and knowing all along that he couldn't trust Mrs. Coulter, he decides in this moment that Lyra is safe and that he is going to go help Lord Asriel. That takes Mrs. Coulter by surprise, though the reader should understand that this is a lie. She had hoped that he might help them with the knife, but he says, I'm going now. And with a rueful smile, a nod, as if to a skillful opponent at chess, she lets him go, makes no attempt to steal the knife, to drug him, to, say, draw a gun on him. He reflects that she is like a complicated, there's that word again, rich and deep Lyra. As they shake hands, he feels the softness of her skin and catches a look which he can't interpret between her and her demon. But he doesn't look back. That is, he turns his back on the monkey decisively. There's an abrupt cut to the debrief, then, between Will and the others. I think that conveys Will's confused emotion in this moment. And, incidentally, the abrupt break with the turn that this story could have taken had Will made a different choice in that moment. She's lying, he declares, though, as far as we know, Mrs. Coulter hasn't actually told any outright lies. Only she's misjudged the rhetorical effect of her final question about Will's mother. Or she's judged it completely right for some inexplicable purpose. Why is Will so sure that he's lying? Maybe this explains it. She loves lying too much to stop, even if it is to her disadvantage. Could it have been the likeness to her daughter Lyra that assures him of this? <laughs> Yorick, who can always tell when humans are up to deceptions, even one as skilled as Lyra, or presumably Mrs. Coulter, 
Yorick did not go along to observe her. He offers no comment here, but moves Will along to the practical question. What is their plan? Now, maybe it's because the trick that they'd use back in Oxford of cutting through with the knife would be too obvious, but Will hesitates at this point. Balthamos knows why. He was foolish. Now he just wants to see the woman again. And Yorick's growl in response is not a warning, as Will thinks at first, but agreement. This is the first real conversation between all three characters that we've seen. The explanation that the angel and the bear's modes of being are so different that they take no notice of one another is not entirely satisfying. Why should that be a reason for their ignoring one another? If Yorick has been perfectly able to befriend humans and witches, why not an angel? Nor is it clear why Yorick, with all his might and all his acumen, should have played such a small role in Will's planning here. Apparently, it does come down to what the angel points out, that Will has been captivated by Mrs. Coulter, that his thoughts now revolve around her, wondering how like her will Lyra be when she's older, how many churchmen are under her spell, and then what would his father have thought? Would he have admired her? Connected with thoughts of his own mother, he feels his heart grimace. Strange image. The stillness in this moment suggested by a distant wood chopping, a bell, and then the nature sounds of rustling and uh, imagery of vultures circling a distant prey. Will reflects that the spell he's under is pleasant and tempting but into the silence comes the drone of zeppelins from the north. He has to decide, and he makes, to all appearances, the right decision. Not to help Mrs. Coulter, not to see her again, but after nightfall, to rescue Lyra using the knife. Once more, Yorick asks him for what his plan actually is, and in brief, we get it to take Lyra through into another world where Amma will be able to use the drug to wake her. Meanwhile, Yorick's only job is to distract her. The chapter closes on the image that gives it its title of the dragonflies hatching. It's a very short scene aboard the president's own Zeppelin. And the hatching of the dragonflies from their cocoons approaches very close to the butterfly soup image in Pullman's biographical sketch. He uses this to describe the feeling and the importance of secrecy in writing. And the dragonflies themselves and their riders are also some of his favorite details to bring up when he apologetically fends off charges of writing fantasy while sort of acknowledging that that's what he's doing. The most important image here, though, might be that the spies have to be there for the hatching of the dragonfly so that their face is the first thing that the creatures see to imprint it on them and that they tell it in that moment its name, teaching the being 
who it was. Now, Samakia is there, while Tialis is busy with the lodestone, uh, sending a message. So he almost misses this crucial moment. I think this emphasizes once again how critical a turning point in the story this actually is. Mm, they're three hours out, apparently. We hear some discussion of the tactics of the church and of the defenses planned on the part of uh, Ogunwe's soldiers. The church is planning to remove Lyra's head to prove that she's killed, reminiscent again of Azriel and his uh, block of ice with a skull that might or might not be Dr. Grimman's in it. But immediately there comes a change in plans that the spies are to cooperate with the boy. While he has the knife, he has the initiative, Lord Roke says. So they leave at once. The dragonflies hatched, their antennae sensing, their flight almost weightless in the buffeting air, and their harnesses, which they'll wear until they die. The last image we get, like with Ruta Scotti flying with the angels, is of the joy of flight, or like Mary riding with the Mulefa. They're born to do this, and they're eager to fly on to beat the Zeppelins down to the valley. Thanks for listening.